live in a world plagued by pornography, and people are looking for help. When an individual struggles with pornography, they often turn to their church leader for that help. How does a leader help a person overcome the shame of this issue and start seeing positive progress? How can a leader help youth to open up about struggles with pornography? What are some lasting, proven tactics that actually make a difference? In order to help, Leading Saints has created the Liberating Saints Library with more than 20 presentations featuring individuals who have a unique perspective or expertise around this topic. Three of those most popular sessions are available to watch now. Simply text the word LEAD to 474747 to start watching now or visit leadingsaints.org liberating. I'm Jill Armijo and I live in Lehigh, Utah. I'm so grateful for Leading Saints because I have received so much perspective other than where my brain was when I first started listening. I enjoy listening to people who have had different experiences than me and have a gospel perspective and have worked really hard in their situation to make sense of it with relation to being a child of God and being all in in the gospel with each other and, and everyone as a family. Welcome back to the Leading Saints podcast. My name is Kurt Frankham, your host, and I'm excited to have you back or you brand newbies out there who's found this podcast episode. I'm glad you found us. And you should know that Leading Saints is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through content creation, just like this podcast. So be sure you're subscribed to the podcast, you're following it, and maybe going back into the archives and finding specific episodes that stand out to you that might help you in one particular area or another, and uh, we're glad you found us. Now, I'd like to thank the contractor that across the street from me who decided to run his generator through most of this uh, episode. This is the life of a podcaster, folks. You know, we do what we can to give you good audio, but you probably never even know that that happened without me telling you that. So see if you can pick up the generator in the background. But in this episode, I talk with Kim Day, who is a phenomenal therapist for the Life-Changing Services, lifeandchangingservices.org. I mean, probably if you're a bishop in or a church leader in the along the Wasatch Front, you're familiar with Life-Changing Services. They do some great work. And uh, there, I think they have therapists all over, like Kimberly Day, who is, uh, I believe, lives in Washington, the state of Washington. Came across uh, Kimberly's work a few months ago as she was a guest on a, a different podcast, and she was talking about this concept of abuse and how to recognize abuse. It just fascinated me because obviously as church leaders, as Latter-day Saints who are in a community with other individuals, we want to be able to recognize when abuse is happening so that we can offer safety to individuals, that we can step in and help offer resources, right? And oftentimes we miss it. And it's not because you're a bad person or you're numb inside, but it's very easy to miss the, the signs of abuse. And, and I'm not talking like traumatic abuse that's sending people to the hospital or assaulting people physically or sexually or anything. It's like I'm talking about just the, the beginning of abuse. If we can, let's recognize it earlier, then we can help more people before it gets to such a traumatic level. So as I talk with Kim, I want you to listen for like the behavior fallacy that we sometimes have where we think, oh, bad behavior's gone away. So the abuse must be over or the everybody must be okay because the behavior, the bad behavior isn't happening. So listen for that definitely 
Also listen to for the conversation about when Kim talks about even the victims of abuse may not recognize that abuse is happening, right? We sort of think, well, if you're being abused, just come and tell me. I would have helped you, right? But oftentimes, the victims of abuse don't recognize abuse. But nonetheless, this is a, this is a heavy discussion. It's an in-depth discussion. You may have to listen to this a few times or check out some of the more in-depth resources that provide here, but it just goes to show just how complex these issues of abuse are. And now this episode isn't going to, you know, make you make you perfect at recognizing all forms of, of abuse, but maybe it's a, a beginning. Maybe it's a step that we can be more aware of the potential abuse happening around us so that we can offer help and safety. All right, let's get to it. Here's my interview with Kimberly Day. Today, I have the opportunity to chat with Kim Day. How are you, Kim? I'm doing great. How about you, Kurt? Very good. I'm excited to have you on here. We've had various phone calls and chats and and sort of picking apart some of these concepts we'll talk about around the, the concept of abuse and uh, hopefully helping leaders and Latter-day Saints uh, better recognize abuse and get resources to those that may be experiencing abuse or who may be unintentionally abusing others, or I don't know if that's a thing, but uh, we'll, we'll talk about it nonetheless. So Kim, just give us your brief background on you and uh, what brings you to speak about this concept. I work with women who are married to men who are struggling with pornography or sexual addiction or have been married to a spouse who is struggling with that. And as I have worked with them over a number of years, I've seen some of the underlying dynamics of what takes place when there's an addiction present and also dynamics that are unhealthy or destructive in the relationship that maybe aren't necessarily directly related to the addiction itself or getting sober from the addiction. And so it really launched me into this exploration of abuse and healthy versus unhealthy relationship patterns that often exist very covertly in the relationship where there's not a lot of language to describe and makes it hard to get help to express what's taking place. And yet they can be so destructive. So that's kind of what brought me to yeah. talking about abuse and about relationships. Perfect. And I'll just enter this, insert this caveat here. We realize that abuse can happen from both sides of, of a relationship. But in the context of this discussion, we'll primarily be focusing on the abuse that comes from a husband or the, the male figure of the, of the relationship. And statistically speaking, I would imagine most church leaders and other individuals see that dynamic than others. So anyways, we realize abuse happens both directions at times, but that's just in the context of what we're going to speak on, right? Yeah, absolutely. And not to undermine abuse of children, which is yes, also exactly. very, very serious and often not addressed, but uh, we can't do everything in one podcast, right? So That's right. That's right. <laughs> so we're and there's many more episodes bit. to come. And I'm sure we'll touch on those in the future. And so the reason why I felt like this concept was so important to maybe explore through this podcast episode is that the last thing any leader wants or any loved one wants is that to see abuse escalate to the point where maybe somebody's in the hospital or somebody needs extensive therapy for the rest of their life or you know just like so traumatic, right? Any level of abuse can be traumatic, but obviously over time, it can become more and more traumatic. And so the earlier we can recognize abuse and sort of see those red flags and point out, you know, resources and whatnot, that the better it is, right? Yes. Amen. Absolutely. Cool. So 
let's just maybe talk about this concept, the, the, the word abuse, because this is a very charged word. Like me, myself, as a husband and a father, like I would be mortified if anybody classified any of my actions as abuse. Now, you know, I'm not saying I'm perfect or I don't, you know, have a have have bad days, but I really don't think I don't classify myself as abuser. But sometimes there is some level of abuse that we all may we all may do. Like even myself, again, it's nothing traumatic, nothing that would get me arrested or but but nonetheless abuse happens in any form. So just talk about the 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 word abuse and how it can be sometimes overly charged. Yes, I appreciate that question because I have a love-hate relationship with that word as well because it does. It elicits an immediate emotional response and an expectation of what that means. Everybody uh, uh, ties a different definition to what does that mean and it also has this implied villainization, if you will, of somebody who may be getting it wrong. (laughs) And also, well, that this is potentially is something that means I have to run. I have to run from the relationship and, or, or I have to, again, there's all of these assumptions when you use that word. And so sometimes I prefer to mm-hmm. talk about unhealthy or damaging relationship dynamics because abuse exists on a spectrum. And I love what you just said at the beginning, where if we can catch those unhealthy dynamics early on, there's so much more hope for both parties and for the, or the relationship to repair the damage that is being done establish new patterns, maybe learn new skills so that future damage doesn't happen. But the the reason I like the word abuse yeah. is because it also gives some severity to some of these patterns that oftentimes are swept under the rug that we just say, oh, that's that's okay, that's no big deal, when they're really having a very significant impact because there is a pattern, a longstanding pattern of them building on each other. So again, there's my love-hate relationship with the word. But it's what yeah. kind of brings people in saying, how do we see this? Yeah. So help us understand, like, give us some examples of that spectrum. Like, obviously, on the the far end of one side of the spectrum, you know, the more traumatic side, obviously, abuse, we can easily come up with examples of some of that. But maybe on just sort of the beginning of that that spectrum, what does abuse typically look like? What are some examples of that? Yeah. Uh, if I can do a little precursor into that question and maybe defining it or not defining it. I'll be really helpful. And actually, I'm not, I'm not going to define it for you. But I'm going to tell you there are three <laughs> ways that it can be defined. When you go to okay. Webster or you go to your neighbor or whoever, there are three ways that abuse is often defined as abuse or not abuse. And that's through either the impact that it's having on the victim or the person who's receiving the abuse, the actual interaction. And a lot of the dynamics or the abuse that we're going to talk about today have to do with relationship patterns that happen over and over. And so it's hard to, it's not a single incident, but it's a pattern of incidents. It's a way of interacting with someone. So you talk about the interaction or the intent. And you kind of alluded to this earlier on in the beginning is oftentimes somebody can be abusive or what what the pattern may be destructive to the partner and be very damaging without the intent of causing harm. And that's a lot what we want to talk about Mm, today is trying to flush out that. And so you may have a partner, you may have a husband, and I'll I'll use a hypothetical scenario here. You have me, and I apologize, this is not all about sexual addiction, but that's my background. So if I default to sexual addiction or pornography use, that's because that's how I'm seeing it. But also I do believe oftentimes it does play in. And so there adds that level of complexity when there is an addiction present. So you may have somebody who's acting out 
covertly, they're secretly addicted to porn or chat rooms, or they're having this, this secret double life. And their intent is not to hurt their partner. I think we would all agree that what they're doing is damaging to their partner. And it's interesting, research shows it's damaging even if the partner doesn't know what's happening. In a lot of areas, it will, it's causing damage to the relationship, obviously, but also to the partner herself. So, and some people would classify just acting out the secret life, the pornography. Some would classify that as abuse, some wouldn't. And I'll let you make your own decision on that. But oftentimes with that, there is an underlying, there are very common patterns that someone who needs to keep the secret will adopt. So, for example, you may have heard of gaslighting. It is a form of abuse. It can be very involved. It can be very damaging. But it looks something like this. This is one way it may play out is where a husband is acting out with pornography. He doesn't want his wife to know. She finds a search history that is troubling to her. She brings it to him. And what does he have to do? Well, he doesn't want to come clean. So he's got to divert her somehow. He's got to change the subject. He's got to deny it. He's got to somehow undermine her sense of, I, there's something of concern that I need to talk to you about. He's got to undermine her gut instinct and what she's literally seeing in her hands. And when that happens over and over and over, and oftentimes it happens around acting out, but then it, it bleeds into other areas of the relationship and the life. It becomes this perpetual way of living in this lack of integrity, but it degrades her sense of confidence in her own reality because she's always being told a story or she's always, oftentimes it will shift into blame where he, he'll blame it on her or he'll blame it on something else. And so she gets really, we talk about getting spun. She gets really confused over what's real and she starts to not trust herself anymore because she has to pick. Am I going to trust my husband, my spouse, who I, I want to feel safe with, who I love and I, I want to trust or do I trust myself? Do I trust what my senses are telling me? And so oftentimes she will stuff her own instincts in lieu of being able to give mm-hmm. him the benefit of the doubt or whatever that is. But over long periods of time, she starts to feel like she's crazy. She starts to feel like she can't trust herself. She starts to lose yeah. even her very own her her sense of her own reality. So his intent may not be yeah. to cause her harm, but that is absolutely what is happening on a very on a very significant scale. I love that idea of, you know, just how you've broken that down because let's imagine an individual, a husband had magical powers of some type and he could literally wave a magical, wave his magic wand and make his wife crazy. Like if he could do it that directly, that would be abuse, right? It's like, you can't just go around making people crazy. But nonetheless, he's just through this, these habits and routines and this path that he's taken, he's literally made her crazy by lying and doing things that now she feels crazy. She's dismissing these inner feelings and red flags that she's seeing because of what he's, how he's lied about it. And therefore, it can be very abusive. It's very traumatizing to, to his wife because she's now thinking she's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And back to your question of a given example of a spectrum. So that can happen on yeah. a very uh, minimal, let's say minimal degree of gaslighting. But whenever I've seen addiction present, there's always some degree of gaslighting. But I've seen that be really intense where that grows. And, and sometimes it, there is an actual there is an awareness of that and the intent to confuse, to demean, and we'll, we'll hit on this, I'm sure, a little bit later too. Gaslighting 
whether the intent is initially, there is a shift in power and control in the relationship. The gaslighter is usurping power. He is saying, my reality is what we're going to you know, go by, what I'm going to tell you. And the person who's being gaslit, if you will, is giving up power. Mm-hmm. She starts to doubt herself in that act of giving him the benefit of the doubt. And so sometimes there is gaslighting that's taking place with the intent to usurp power and control. And when there is a power and control dynamic where there's an, a, there is a, a pattern behavior mm-hmm. with the intent to either usurp or maintain power and control in the relationship, that's a different, I would call that a, a little bit of a different form of abuse. Often you see them together. And actually, fundamentally, yeah. that's um, if you were to call a domestic violence hotline and say, hey, you know, I have concerns, that's how they define abuse is this whenever there's this pattern of behavior with the intent to maintain or obtain power and control in the relationship, whether or not there are broken bones, whether or not there's rape or these other extreme things, when there is that suppression of a partner by another partner with that agenda, there is that's abuse, that's domestic abuse. Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful. And I, and I sort of asked about that spectrum because a lot of times maybe there's a situation where a husband is, is caught looking at pornography and maybe he's lied about it for it's, and it's obvious he's lied about it for weeks or months or even years. Right. And, and it, well, let's keep it really simple. Let's say he's only, he's lied about it like uh, for a few weeks now, but then he's caught. And then for, to interact with a therapist or a, a leader or a church leader or whatever, and then suddenly is, they say, "Well, he's he abused me," and everybody and the lay individual is going to hear that and be like, "Abused you?" Like, yeah, I get that it's not great to look at pornography and you shouldn't lie, but abuse you because again, this word is so charged, right? Yeah. And so, so the leader or the the husband or whatever can sort of dismiss that, like, yeah, maybe she is going crazy because she thinks this is abuse. I mean, come on, you know, this is an abuse. I'll show you what abuse is. Just look in the <laughs> newspaper, and, you know, go to the hospital. That's what abuse looks like. And so, again, it's such a charged word, but we're looking at it a spectrum. This, it, it would still be abuse, even though nobody necessarily needs to go to jail or it doesn't mean that the marriage is doomed or anything, but it's having the impact on her in some, on some level of because of that abuse and trauma that's entering the, the relationship, right? Is that, yes. Am I unpacking that correctly? Exactly. And I like the words that you use because what by splitting it up or looking at saying there are different lenses in which you can define abuse. You can honor the impact mm-hmm. of what she's experienced. And research has shown most, the, the vast majority of women who find out either through discovery or disclosure that their, their sweetheart, their marriage partner, and I think this is even more common in our church because we have so much around what this eternal marriage means. There's so much. Yeah expectation of this. There's so much relying on this being healthy and safe. But even anywhere in the world, it's not just within our church. The vast majority of women, when they find out that there's this secret life that's existing, the impact is they it is uh, they start to manifest PTSD symptoms, and some very significantly. So the impact is very real. And so as priesthood leaders, you can honor both the impact and the intent and say, hey, what is happening is doing a tremendous amount of damage to your wife, to your partner, to this person that you're professing to love. We need to acknowledge that and validate that. As a leader, you can also encourage the husband to do that. Sometimes there's some resistance there. But as a leader, you certainly can acknowledge and validate the impact as being very real and significant 
at the same time acknowledging that if a husband is caught up in an addiction, and there are many, many, many men, many good. I mean, I, I truly believe that Satan is targeting our the men of this generation because of their goodness, because of their nobility. He's trying to break them down and to, uh, so that they will not be effective. Uh, use, they, will, they will not be able to do the work that they are capable of doing. So they are being targeted because of how, how strong they are. So they very, and there are many great men who, who love their wives and who are devoted to their family, and, that, and they are trapped in these addictions and these very destructive, addictive patterns. And so we can acknowledge their intent of, you know, they're trying to avoid shame, trying to avoid blame, trying to keep the secret. They're, they're dealing with these demons of if anybody knew, nobody would love, you know, I would be unlovable. I would lose my family. Oh, I, you know, I can't, I can't bring this to light. All the things that would help them to get help are uh, Satan attacks that those things. And so they feel like they have to keep it a secret. They feel like they can do it on their own. They feel like that, no, again, nobody would love them if anybody yeah. knew. And so their behavior, you can, I visualize it as a man just flailing around and in, you know, trying to get free. And in the process, he's whacking his, his wife and his kids. He's not intending to hurt him, but he's doing real damage. Yeah. So you can you can honor and validate both realities and get both partners help. You don't have to pick. Well, the wife's reality is more real than the husband's, you know, even um, or the husband's. And this is what has happened for so many years. Is and I love that in our culture, in the church, and even in the industry that I work in with sexual addiction, there has been such an effort to humanize those who struggle with an addiction, because it's an incredibly common problem. I'm sure you priesthood leaders don't need me to tell you that <laughs> this is happening a lot. And so I yeah. love that we can, we can give that, that validation of, to anybody who's struggling, that they're not alone, that there is hope, that they're not worthless, <laughs> that, that they, can, they can get the help and make the changes that they need. But still set that expectation high of, no, this is something really that needs to change. Because and slowly, as they come to that realization, yeah. they also need to get a grasp on what it has done to their spouse. Yeah, yeah, and I and I appreciate this conversation because obviously we've talked about the the concept of abuse being a very charged word, a dramatic word. And when we, for the sake of this conversation, talking about the spectrum, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to use the word abuse or call the individual because you've done this, you abused your wife. But the point being is that by recognizing there's this spectrum we can then begin to see when the marriage is, we don't have to wait for the wife is now going to the hospital or has, tra has deep trauma before we can start helping. We can say, okay, we're not going to, you're not necessarily an abuser, but what you're doing is is not going to, the, the marriage will not survive if, if you continue these things. It's just, you can't just act out and lie about it and expect the marriage to continue. So we need to handle that. And it's, and it's impacting your wife in a very traumatic way. And so, so, so again, we've recognized the red flag. We recognize it needs to be addressed rather than like, oh, come on, like boys will be boys. They, they look at pornography. You shouldn't do it, but come on, like let's not act like the marriage is under threat here. And because that, like you mentioned, that we hold these eternal marriages. I mean, these are precious covenants and we don't want to lose them. And the minute we sort of insert that into the dialogue, we feel like we're not helping. But actually, it, we are helping when we when we recognize the, the abuse, even when it's a very small level of abuse, when we recognize it, we're actually helping the marriage continue longer term, right? Yeah. And I, if I could change your wording, which it's totally not appropriate. Please do. <laughs> Rather than 
even when the intent is not to abuse, but the impact yes. is is significant. Yes. And along that same vein, oftentimes there's a lot of pressure put in on wives because, well, because I think that in, in a lot of cases, there's a recognition, the husband's not meaning to cause harm. You know, this is a common problem. Yeah. And there is a minimization of her trauma, but also, and there's also this subtle message, and sometimes it's not so subtle, of you just need to suck this up. You just need to accept this. You just need to, you need to give more or you need to not make such a big deal about it. Don't, these are kind of my pet peeve messages that often get perpetuated mm. in the church. So if, <laughs> one is uh-huh. don't say anything to anybody. Don't speak up about it. You know, don't, you know, stay quiet. That just perpetuates trauma. It also yeah. creates a sense of isolation and pervasive depression and anxiety. And that I see so prevalently because so many women internalize this belief. I, there's nowhere I can speak. I have no voice. And so it, it just perpetuates a bunch of other problems. It also hinders her ability to create her own safety mm. because the reality is, is he is threatening her. He has threatened the relationship. He's threatened her, threatening her through his actions. Yeah. And she needs permission to set healthy boundaries, to create safety for herself when he is not. That doesn't mean she's giving up on the marriage. That doesn't mean that she's condemning her or judging right. him inappropriately. That means she's doing something very healthy to protect herself and her kids. Well, he gets his act together. That can look like a lot of different things, but oftentimes in our in our culture, women internalize the idea that I just have to take out whatever is being dished out, and I can't I can't stand up for myself. I can't set boundaries. Mm-hmm. That's not allowed. That's not Christ like. That's not focusing on my marriage. That's not really loving. And in fact, it's one of the most loving things that can be done. And the second, yeah, I'm going to call it the myth, a myth that is often perpetuated. And it's not just in our church, it's everywhere, is that if a husband is having problems with acting out or with pornography, it's because he's not getting enough sex at home. And if she stepped it up a little bit, then it would help his struggle. And so there's this pressure and responsibility put on the wife to meet this perceived need of his so that he doesn't have to stray or go elsewhere. And so there's a lot of problems with that when there's right. blame put on the wife and then it's putting her in a position of a huge degree of risk and unsafety. It is completely turning healthy sexuality into intimacy into something that is very destructive potentially to her. Yeah. I mean, uh, an individual seeking seeking porn or acting out sexually, it's rarely about the sex. I mean, there's there's deeper issues of trauma and things that they're trying to numb out yes. to when they're going there. So just making sex more available in appropriate arenas is not going to heal what he's, what, what's hurting that individual deep down. Yeah. Yeah. And you're telling somebody who's in trauma for the most, and who is feeling unsafe and, yeah. and throwing, trauma. <laughs> throwing oh. her into this situation where, yeah. It causes a lot of sexual injury and perpetuates a lot of a lot of harm for both parties, and it doesn't help him at all. So that's the yeah. second myth that I yeah I love I love these I love these myths. <laughs> Let's keep going. So um, this is what I'm, I'm learning so far is that like recognizing that intent like that's the first as far as the lenses of abuse like recognizing that the the abuser doesn't have to have the intent the intent of abuse in in order for it to be abuse. And uh, that's just a good, a good perspective to have. So, anything else around intent that I mean, you've, you've touched on it quite a bit, but anything else you'd mention about as far as intent goes? Did we hit on it well? I think we did. <laughs> yes. Okay. We talked a little bit at the beginning 
<laughs> of the hypothetical scenarios we've been talking about mm-hmm. is, again, a husband with the intent to avoid shame or pain. But when we talk about abuse, we have to talk about when there's this in- intent for power and control. And unfortunately, I see that far too frequently. And in the world, also in our church, we even have scriptures talking about whenever, and I'm probably going to botch this, whenever men are given a little bit of a power and authority uh-huh. as they suppose, they immediately begin to exercise unrighteous dominion, right? Yep. And so, and then this, and, and there's this huge amount of condemnation for anybody who, who would try to usurp this power to dominate somebody else. That's not where, that's not in line with God's view of the priesthood or masculinity, even in general. But it is very common that we see this dynamic. And this is, this is my personal opinion. This is where I think is one of the biggest problems with our pornography epidemic that is very rarely discussed is because just imagine, I mean, you have many of these, many young men, older men are getting caught up in pornography at an early age. It's where they're getting their sexual education. And in it, and literally, it is an education in objectifying and using. It is education of dehumanizing other people. It starts with just an image, a stranger that they're never going to meet. It's easy to mm-hmm. make that woman, that person, an object because that's not a real, you know, to them, it's not a real person. Right. But they internalize that ability to do that and they start to do that elsewhere. They start to do that with women in general. Then they start to do it in their primary relationship. And they, it becomes a learned behavior where there's this expectation of you are there to meet my needs. Mm-hmm. And I should, I should have this position of dominance or superiority or entitlement. And they deeply, it becomes an attitude. It becomes a belief about how the world works or how it should work. I love the Book of Mormon where they talk about, I think it's a, such a perfect example of domestic violence in the Book of Mormon. You start out and people are like, what? Where? There's no stories about that in, in the Book of Mormon. But you start out with Lehi and his family leaving Jerusalem, right? And you've got Nephi and you've got Laman and Lemuel. And from the very beginning, there's this like conflict that builds for their entire lives of who should rule, you know, and Nephi is not interested in ruling, but Laman and Lemuel are, they have this mindset that they're entitled to this position of being able to rule. And every time there's a conflict with Nephi, it comes back to, he's trying to take this power, you know, this power that's rightfully mine. He's trying to usurp this position of dominance and they feel very wronged and very robbed. And every time they beat Nephi with a stick or whatever, (laughs) tie him to a, a boat mask or these obviously very abusive behaviors these family in this family relationship it's justified in their minds because of their anger which comes from their belief that they're entitled to this position hmm. so and then you see that playing out until it gets so extreme where the lord tells nephi hey your life is in danger you better leave this leave the family and i think there's that becomes sacred ground for anybody who's in the dynamic that the lord really does direct direct to in, to ensure safety and to ensure things, the protection of his people. But then this attitude, what I find fascinating is this attitude of entitlement is perpetuated for generations through all of the Lamanites. You see this for hundreds of years. And I find it fascinating that when the, at least that we know of the first real huge success the Nephites have on conversion to the gospel of Jesus Christ of the Lamanite people is when we have Ammon and his brothers go 
and teach, and they convert the people of anti-Nephi-Lehi. But one of the first things uh, that they talk about, and this is one of the speeches of anti-Nephi-Lehi, he says, I thank my, my beloved brethren that they came to share. And what he, it's interesting, he doesn't say to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, to share this great message of hope. The thing he focuses on to share and to help us to recognize the false traditions of our evil fathers. But this, yeah. <laughs> which seems, I, I was like, it seems so culturally insensitive, like so not PC <laughs> in, our, in uh-huh. our vernacular right now. But you hear those, those phrases of it first, before they could really convert to the true gospel, they had to give up these attitudes and these beliefs that they had grown up with of entitlement, that they were wronged, that they were robbed, that they should hate or they should try to dominate this other group of people. And I think there's a pattern in that because, you know, pornography perpetuating this belief of entitlement and superiority, this learned behavior and belief of superiority and acceptance of abuse, because I think it totally, one of the things that pornography does is it it allows abuse and abusive behaviors and attitudes to become normal. So there isn't always a recognition that you are abusing because you're acting out of what, of your belief system. Mm. Well, I should, you know, you. I should dominate you. you know, I am superior to you. whatever it is. You may not speak the words, but the belief, the underlying belief, is there. I think that this is a trick that Satan's been using from the beginning of time to dominate and suppress a people. We have this with slavery. We have this with, and certainly with gender. But because of the way that pornography is set up and why it's being, it's this, like I said, this infestation right now. It's a new way for Satan to perpetuate this belief to those who ingest it that they are entitled to a position of dominance. And that's right and that's okay. And you will see some men who are addicted to pornography who don't necessarily buy in in that. In that. They come home and they want a partnership with their wife. And they're kind and they're gentle and they're loving. But you also see others that who have who really have internalized that, and maybe it wasn't even from pornography. Maybe it was a family of origin. Like I said, Satan's been working this lie for a long time. But that plays out again on that spectrum of how intense are men willing to get to demand submission into that position. You have maybe again on a lesser scale, you have some degree of unrighteous dominion of well, I'm I'm the boss, I am the priesthood holder. You got to listen to what I say. I'm I'm the deal breaker. If we disagree, my say has more weight than your say. You know, yeah. to more extreme, I'm entitled to your body, and the scriptures say that. You know, I'm entitled to your body when I when I want it, how I want it, whether or not you resist. There's a, a there's a level of justification. Maybe you have, even if she says outright no. I see a lot, honestly, a lot of rape happening mm. to the ladies in the church. That's not often caught labeled as rape because it's in the marriage, but she clearly says no and doesn't want it, and she's overridden to more physical forms of, if you're going to challenge me, I'm going to put you back in your place. That may be forms of just intimidation, physical threat. I'm going to stand over you and kind of glare at you a little bit, you know, (laughs) hostily, and she gets the message that she needs to step back in line to acting out more physically to usurp that but again that's on a different this is great i mean there's so much you really cracked it open for me because again we're talking in the context of like uh you know 
pornography usage and sexual uh, addiction and marriage and things because that's sort of your bread and butter. That's what you're focused and help people through your therapy and counseling. But again, to step back and see it as like abuse happens when somebody is trying to maintain dominance and control over another. And I love the Nephi and, and Laman and Lemuel example because that's exactly what's happening there. They're trying to maintain the dominance and control over their their brother. They, he needs to be put in his place. He's the younger brother. You know, doesn't he know his place? And the younger brother. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't know his place. He keeps trying to be righteous. <laughs> and then if you take that framework and you can put it on everything from church leadership to parenting to relationships, right? Because obviously, you know, you take a, the typical the typical ward and obviously the bishop is the dominant figure in a ward. Okay, great. That doesn't mean he's suddenly, you know, an abuser or practicing unrighteous dominion. But what is it that that individual or what are you doing as a leader to maintain dominance and control over others? Then that sort of makes you reflect and think, oh, huh, yeah, I do that thing and this thing or I manipulate this way. And, uh, you know, that person said that, you know, when I did that one thing, it made me made her feel this way. Like naturally, again, it's not like we're all mean abusers that are trying to victimize people, but naturally the adversary is trying to tempt us through maintaining our dominance and control over over situations, over relationships, right? And so that's just a great way to perceive and understand this concept of, of abuse. Yeah. And like you said at the very beginning, that if we check ourselves, if we recognize these patterns or that maybe are that mm-hmm. are cause for problems early yeah, on, yeah. then we can fix them. The deeper we allow them to get, the more damage they cause often and the harder they are to to, I'm going to say the word repair or to, to give up because oftentimes when we're talking about this type of abuse, real recovery doesn't happen unless a man, and I guess it could go either way, but I don't see this as much with women, unless a man is willing to, to give up those abusive attitudes and beliefs that say, I'm entitled to this position of dominance. The entitlement, yeah. Yep. And uh, the deeper seated, the longer those are perpetuated, the deeper seated and they become closely identified with the man's identity himself. It feels like you're asking him to give up who he is or how he defines himself. So it becomes a lot harder, which is where, you know, when we teach our youth, when we teach our young men, you know, especially recognizing that a a good portion of them are experimented, explore with pornography. They're being exposed Mm -hmm. to those ideas because pornography fundamentally is abusive. It not only depicts abuse towards women, but it commonly, that's mainstream pornography, but it absolutely always depicts abusive attitudes towards her, which you may not even recognize that you're adopting. Yeah, this is another point I really want to underscore is that, you know, we often, obviously, like you said, I mean, pornography is a pandemic in its own right. I mean, it's just pervasive and everywhere. And, and you know, we make the the comparisons that, oh, you know, the older boomer generations, they had to go into a store and find a specific magazine. And now this generation is just popping up on their phone, right? And so we're not shocked to hear that as the man through a young man through his youth has maybe had a lot of struggles with pornography. But then, we, you know, we help them through it, we encourage them, we go through the penance process. And then maybe they go on and move to into marriage and we think, oh, great, you know, this is, they have an, an appropriate arena <laughs> to do this, be fine. you know. <laughs> Right. And again, and not that, you know, obviously 
we've talked about this before on the podcast. That doesn't, you know, marriage doesn't fix a pornography usage, but we also have to realize that even if they don't look at pornography ever again, their brain has been programmed through these inappropriate methods of learning about sexuality that these abusive tendencies or the abusive nature of pornography may crop up in this appropriate relationship of marriage, and which then will perpetuates other abuse in the context of that marriage, right? Oh, I, you are... I am thrilled to hear you say that. That's it. I could not have said it better. <laughs> I'm learning. Yes. This is good. This is exactly what is my concern is with. So, I mean, what do we, and uh, here I'm taking a left turn, but the audience is used to my left turns on this, but like, that's so fascinating to me to think about that, you know, as my children age into the age of marriage, like, sure, I want to be the type of parent who's talking about sex, who's, you know, making it a safe place, answered questions, those types of things. But what does one do to help? reprogram the mind of maybe a teenager who's really struggled with pornography to the point that when they enter a marriage that those, you know, it's un, it's untangled. <laughs> that is an excellent question. I wish I had it just, okay, here's the book you read for detangling the, because the problem is it is so individual. It's so yeah, yes, much on, I mean, these are, these are lessons that are engraven in the heart that are, are often completely invisible, maybe even to parents. I think. Mm-hmm. part of it, well, a big piece of the answer is you teach them to align to God and be sensitive to the spirit and to be discerning and God will correct them. <laughs> God will yeah, not allow right. his daughters to be demeaned and, and demoralized by his sons, even if they're not like, if the, God will correct them if they're listening, if they're tuned in. And so I think that's mm-hmm. one of the greatest strengths of our covenants and of the gospel in general is that if you are truly living it, these, I'm going to call it the sins of the fathers, like this, our culture and the muck that sometimes we just create in living in this fallen world and the things that we're exposed to that maybe, you know, these young men didn't choose to like, they're not like, I'm going to learn to be an abuser, you know, <laughs> like that. No, they want to have a healthy relationship. They want to be. Yeah. They, nobody. Even, yeah. <laughs> they're, but they've been exposed to these things either through bad choices they've made or for whatever reason that they have adopted some of these. And as we teach them to, and as they choose to really to honor their covenants and to align with the spirit, to seek correction, to like actually seek correction and not be afraid of, I mean, that's the heart of repentance is how do I get better? Where, where are my blind spots? Where am I flawed? And I guarantee if they are Mm -hmm. flawed in this area, you know, and they go into marriage, this is Heavenly Father is going to be like, okay, not okay. You don't treat, this is my daughter. (laughs) You step it up, you know? And, and so in a very personal and subtle way, those things can and are corrected. But at the same time, I think that awareness that we can talk about, and as we teach true doctrine, as we model it in our relationships, as we talk about it openly, because these things are not talked about very often, at least the applications of them. I'm pretty clear as I've listened to general authorities just in just in general conference, they never ever condone unrighteous dominion or the man is in charge or you know, like women submit to your husband's stupidity right. or whatever yeah. it is. Like, like they talk about this equal <laughs> partnership, you know. Sometimes the application we miss. Yeah. So talking about where are we missing? It. How yes. are we not aligned with true doctrine? I think is really powerful. And 
if I can, I'll talk about if I can go into one area that's a little bit sensitive, but I think, let me, oh, go ahead. Let me insert just one, yes. one thought here that I just had the thought of like, you know, that just because a behavior is stopped. So let's make, let's say a teenagers really struggle with pornography. Maybe they get things in control a little bit. They go on a mission. They're, they're doing great. They come home, maybe a few slip ups, but Hey, we, we keep encouraging them and they find some consistency in life away from those things. We may think, Oh, look, Johnny, he's good. Like he's figured this out, man. That's so great. Like he's making good decisions. It's easy to think, Oh, the problem is fixed. Right. But we also have to say, well, even though Johnny maybe has stopped these things, I wonder what additional resources I can make to him so that he truly understands what healthy sexuality looks like so that yes. he can understand what healthy sexuality to take into his marriage. Because right now, all he has to reference is sort of those negative images that he doesn't want to think about anymore, but that's just what he's understood sex to be is that dominance, that violence, that abuse that is so often portrayed in in pornography. And so it may be just say, hey, why don't we take a few more steps of maybe six more weeks of therapy or six more months of therapy or finding the right therapist who can really go through these things so that walking into marriage, they don't or step in this trap of, of abuse because that's sort of the framework they're going from. Yes. And I would take that even farther because this is what I see all the time. And what I imagine a lot of our priesthood leaders are seeing is you have a man who's struggled with pornography in the past and he's been married maybe for decades. You know, they have a dozen mm -hmm. kids or, you know, they got kids and they're <laughs> active in the ward yeah. and everything looks good on the surface. And you, you know, because of your, you know, you're working with the husband at confidentiality, you know, he's been struggling with pornography and maybe for many years, maybe he's even overcome it or supposedly he's now sober. And we look at that as, Oh, you're arrived. Finally, you're, you're okay. But we never look at this other dynamic where you have a wife who's, who is oftentimes saying, okay, well, he's not acting out, but he's not treating me any better. But he's still, he's still minimizing what I say. He's still not listening to anything I have to say. Again, oftentimes they're not these overt, you know, he's mm -hmm. throwing me against the wall or th anything like that. But he, she feels like yeah. she has no voice. She feels like she doesn't feel safe. It feels like he hasn't really taken on responsibility to do any real repair, it, the attitude is just like, well, I stopped sleeping around. Isn't that enough? Why are you still complaining? This is your problem now. And it's put on the wife of, hmm. well, look, he's not doing it anymore. Therefore, you should be fine. Well, he may not do be actively doing pornography or whatever preferred form of acting out he was in, involved in, but he hasn't let go of those attitudes. It was still, or those beliefs, and he's still treating her in that same way in that same, yeah. just stifling her. And now she's like, well, what else do I ask him yeah. to do? Again, the, the behaviors have stopped, but that doesn't mean the problem is fixed, right? Right. Because the learning is still there. That's still a belief that he holds that he'd maybe internalized from the pornography, maybe internalized before, and it gave him justification for doing the pornography. Who knows? And I don't really even care but about, you know, a chicken or an egg sort of thing. But we don't have the words to label the problem other than, oh, he was addicted to porn, you know, and now he isn't, or now he's not using. And yet, so often, women are left hanging, feeling like, and there's still this problem that I don't know how to talk about. And it becomes great fodder for gaslighting of saying, see, you're the problem. You're the problem all along. Look what I've done for you. I've stopped doing porn, or I've stopped doing this and this and this. And she's saying, you're still missing it. And I 
and I don't know what else to do. So either she'll, yeah. she recognizes that he's missing the goal or she really starts to, again, further doubt herself. And so it becomes very cumbersome for, I'm sure, priesthood leaders and for all parties involved to say, okay, what is the path forward from here? She's saying things are not fixed. He's saying, I fixed everything I can. If there's problems, look at her, you know, see, she's, you know, reactive and depressed or she's, you know, got all this anxiety. And she's saying, yeah, I'm, I still feel terrible. And priesthood leadership, they come to you and they say, well, what do we do? <laughs> it puts you in a hard place to know a path yeah. forward to give that couple any hope. But I think this type of dialogue helps to yeah. illustrate some of those underlying dynamics that really are deeply troubling in a relationship, deeply damaging, and are really hard to spot and to pull, to call out and to discuss. Wow, this is uh, we we've gone deep here. I'm gonna come to the surface and grab a breath here <laughs> for a minute, but because but again, I think you've really articulated well just how complex these situations are. Right? We can't just say, "Well, I look at the behavior and it seems to be everything seems to be going well." So what's the problem here? And oh, the wife is still sort of acting weird, so she must be crazy. So let's get her the therapy and not worry about him. Or you know, again, you can kind of see just these traps that are all along the way that by stepping back and, and again, this may be an episode you have to listen to a couple times to really sort of sit with these concepts, but they're so crucial to contemplate and understand so that you don't, because this is the the tragedy in all this is when a couple may go to their bishop or their their leader looking for help and then with the best intentions of all parties involved, it actually makes it worse, right? And we just don't want that. So obviously things are these are things worth worth considering. So what I want to do is back up here. You talk about the three lenses of, of abuse, the intent, interaction, and impact. So maybe just talk through these on a surface level because I, I feel like we did a deep dive on intent and I'm not giving enough time for interaction and impact. So Maybe just help us understand the the three lenses of abuse again. Again, I think I'm going to come back to the lens of the impact again. I think, especially when you're working with women, to give that lots of attention and not necessarily have all the answers. I think as we're talking to priesthood leadership, removing the expectation that they should be able to look and recognize all of these complex dynamics that probably guaranteed both marriage partners are not seeing themselves. But when things seem like they're kind of off or there's a puzzle piece missing here. I've had a woman tell me that was one of the best things a bishop told her was just something feels kind of off here. Like, I'm not sure what it is, but something feels off or this doesn't seem right. Or what kind of resources can we help connect you with to put some of these pieces together to make sense of what's going on? Because most of the time when I'm working with women where I can see, and this is because I've been doing this, I can see the abuse and I can see it being from a power and control dynamic, not just an acting out dynamic. Most of the time women don't, they, again, this word freaks people out. And so they don't use that in their own situations. Not always, but oftentimes it's the person who's screaming abuse that is the abuser. (laughs) Unless they've done a lot of really deep work trying to make sense of what's happened. There's a lot of really interesting dynamics that are happening. But oftentimes, women, again, they don't have language. They're not going to use the word abuse. They're probably not going to accept it if you use the word abuse. And so we'll, we'll just take that off the, off the table that you have to use that word at all. But being aware yeah. of these type of dynamics, when you see women that are very depressed, 
that they just feel stifled when they feel like they don't have a voice or they feel like they're, they feel like they're, how would you say that? They feel threatened. Their whole body just seems like it's activated. They may be hypersensitive, you know, or hyper, hyper aroused all the time as far as being really reactive emotionally. There are dynamics going on at home, most likely that are, well, I'll say it is a likely possibility. There are other reasons that might be happening too. <laughs> Sure. It looks yeah. like from but if a, if, it, if they have the background of of abuse, if they have the background of abuse and they're all these alarm bells are going off, it's not crazy to assume that maybe there's a miss a few missing pieces to the situation that yeah. it's worth exploring, right? Yeah, and especially if you know there's a history of pornography use or some form of sexual activity, I would suspect most couples just don't know how to address all of the. Like we talked about a minute ago, all of the implications of having been involved in that for so long. And they get to a point where he's sober. And oftentimes she accepts that because there's improvement. But there's still, again, just most couples, most individuals, they don't have language around talking about this, these issues without raising huge alar- uh, warning bells and getting into fight over whether is this is abuse or it's not abuse. It doesn't matter. There's an underlying issue with the relationship or with that is an unhealthy pattern. So they just don't know how to address it. And I think a lot of us are just in that boat uh, of where do I go? So I will say, because I I really don't want to forget this part, if there's even an inclination of abuse, and I didn't know this until relatively recently, the church actually has an abuse hotline for priesthood leaders 24-7. That's open if you're in the United States and, and Canada, and then they have others for like all the other countries. That you can call up as a priesthood yeah. leader and say, hey, I've got this case and I'm perplexed and what do I do with this? And they will walk you through what to do because this is a very complicated topic. There are a lot of nuances and there is potential for a lot of harm because the other thing that can happen when you're talking about abuse is you encourage women to set strong boundaries and protect themselves. And whenever a woman's or when anybody sets a boundary, there are are at least two reactions to that boundary because the boundary is not about forcing the partner to behave better. It's about creating safety for yourself. That may be accepted well, and they'll take that boundary and say, okay, I'm going to give you the space you're asking for. But the alternative, one of the alternatives is, especially when there's this power and control dynamic of you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to set that boundary. You're not allowed to usurp this. And there is a there's a retaliation component of I'm going to try to put you back in your place through a variety of means. Not all of them are always physical, but sometimes they are. I've been in wards and like every ward I've been in lately in the last 10 years or somebody, I've had a good friend who was almost killed by their husband just in, mm-hmm. just because she tried to stand up for herself. So there, those things actually are very real and then they do happen. I would like to believe they're not the norm in our relationships. I'll say I do believe they're not the norm, but they are far more prevalent than they should be. And so when you're dealing with these complexities, Mm -hmm. utilize your resources. So call the church hotline and say, hey, this is what I've got. And they will walk you through. That's in the handbook. Let me see. I can even tell you what. Oh, it's under the handbook 38.6.2. So that is an excellent resource. Perfect. That's great. And this is, again, there, there's so much here to to think about and, and contemplate. And just like a few, another item that surfaces, oftentimes we sort of expect the victim of abuse 
to recognize the abuse and then bring it to the awareness of everybody around. But like you talk about, even the victims of abuse sometimes don't even know that the abuse is taking place because for various reasons, right? And so we can't just wait on the victim of abuse to do that so that we can, you know, of course, and if they do, of course, we want to be the, you know, help and come to the rescue the best we can and offer resources and get them to safety and those things. But don't expect the victim of abuse to, to bring it. That's why it's so important to sort of just educate ourselves on all these things so that we can recognize it and let them know that there's, there's places for safety. There's boundaries that can be put in place for safety. And anyway, so some things to consider there, right? I'm so glad you say that. I would say that's more often than not is the person who's being abused Hmm. is one of the last persons to be able to use that word. Again, so much around that word. They don't recognize that that's what's happening. They're often in a daze or a fog. Well, again, this is a good introductory episode. Again, we weren't trying to, you know, solve the the world's problems in in just this hour that we've been talking here, but hopefully it gets a leader thinking or a parent contemplating about how sensitive and the the unique dynamics of of these situations and then reach out for additional resources. And for you, Kim, I mean, is there any, what would be the next step for people at this point? If they're like, yeah, this is, I, you know, I want to learn more about this. I want to understand these, these concepts, uh, any place you'd send them specifically? As far as understanding, the best book I've come across is a book by Lundy Bancroft called Why Does He Do That? Specifically talking mm-hmm. again about that. Well, the subtitle of the, of the book is Inside the Minds of Angry and Controlling Men. And uh, again, wow. <laughs> usually, and when, especially when men interact with men, that does not manifest. It doesn't show up. Like, and so with priesthood leaders, they'll be working with guys and, or, you know, other priesthood brethren, and it's not going to be apparent. They're not going to most of the time think, oh, yeah. I bet that guy there's Toman demeans his wife <laughs> because they engage differently. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, he seems like a great yeah, guy. He does. Like, I can't imagine he's, he's any threat. Yeah. And here we have his wife telling me that he's doing this and that. I don't know. I've been around him quite a bit and he doesn't seem that yeah, way. Yeah, he's right? not like that way to me. <laughs> again, another trap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very much so. The other thing I would encourage priesthood leadership to have, in addition to great resources for dealing with pornography or sexual addiction that are specifically trained in that, is to also have know your local resources for abuse have one or two maybe therapists that specialize in abuse that you can send if you have women that you're well you're not sure about or there there are those red flags or warning signs that you can refer them to get that help that they need that may not be through LDS family services they they don't always have that niche i know that's kind of the default but having mm-hmm. somebody locally or somebody that you can refer women to if that's the dynamic and I can send Kurt a bunch of resources. I can send those to you if you, well, I think I already have as far as addiction. Yeah, yeah we can link to a bunch of stuff. So, so yeah, we can inundate you with tons of resources yeah. if, that, <laughs> if that's what you're looking for. So Cool. Awesome. Well, Kim, this has been, uh, this has been so helpful and encouraging and overwhelming at the same time. I'll admit that. Uh, and again, I hate putting together content and I feel like, oh, this is going to leave everybody feeling like overwhelmed. I don't know what to do. And Man, it sounds like anything I do is just search the situation. I just want to help. So just end us, let's uh, send us off, Kim, with just some just some general encouragement that you'd give to, to leaders out there who are just trying to, fi- trying to be helpful in these really sensitive situations. Oh, gosh. I would just say a, a tremendous thank you. I would, <laughs> I would say your willingness to just be open 
to the possibility to not have all the answers and to just sit and be present and listen. And if things hit you as strange or puzzling, just voice that. Oh, that seems odd. Or that doesn't, I'm not sure what's going on there without needing to have the answers. Then utilizing the resources that you do. These are complicated issues and they're not going to be solved in a sit down session. Again, just thank you for your willingness to do what you do, to be present and to be sensitive, to be loving. You're in a place where it can have a tremendous amount of power and do a lot of good for a husband, for a wife, for a couple. And then, yeah, just just pray and <laughs> ask for the additional insight into how to, to fill the need or to even accurately conceptualize what the need is. Because often that, that's what's really missing, is seeing what's really missing in this, this missing piece. That concludes my interview with Kimberly Day. Thank you so much, Kimberly, for articulating some of these things. Again, this, these are complex, right? You may have to sit with some of these concepts or explore more. I implore you to go to the show notes of this episode and check out some of the links that we'll put there of additional resources and ideas and things that, that you can you can explore to see if you can get a better handle on these things. If, if we can become more able to recognize abuse early on, I mean, we could literally save lives, right? And definitely help people avoid trauma that can just be so heavy in their life, so destructive, right? So to me, this is a a valiant effort to uh, move towards. And if there's any other concepts, angles, individuals, people I could interview around this idea, I would love to hear it. We have some great episodes in our archives about sexual abuse that would be worth visiting. Maybe Lillian can help us out by (laughs) putting some of those links in the show notes, but just so valuable to understand abuse, to recognize it to see the red flags and then again maybe we can offer help and and safety so definitely check out the show notes and see how we can better help in this arena and go to leadingsaints.org slash contact if you know of an additional person that we could reach out to to have on the show and explore some of these these concepts as well and remember text the word lead to 474747 in order to access the three most popular sessions of the liberating saints library It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.